الرحمن الرحيم وهي سورة الفتح سورة 48 right at the end ayah number 27 أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم لقد صدق الله ورسوله الرؤيا بالحق لتدخلن المسجد الحرام إن شاء الله آمنين محلقين رؤوسكم ومقصرين لا تخافون فعلم ما لم تعلموه فجعل من دون ذلك فتحا قريبا After Hudaybiyah there might have been some ideas in the minds of people that uh, the Prophet ﷺ had dreamt that he was making tawaf and he was in ihram. Based on that dream, uh, with the advice of the Sahaba, he made firm intention to go for Umrah, which didn't happen. And what happened was the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, and they came back without making Umrah and so on. So obviously as human beings you will be thinking we didn't make Umrah and the Prophet Sallallahu dream explicitly stated that they will be making Umrah. So what is now Allah's hikmah in that? And then obviously there were others in Makkah who knew about the dream and they also started to rebuke the Muslims and said that your prophet's dream is not a dream, it's just a fantasy and so on. So in response to that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends this ayah that Allah has (coughs) confirmed the dream of the Rasul, his Rasul. To make something true, make something true to its word. So Allah has made his word to his Rasul true in which sense that most certainly indeed you all will be entering the Masjid Haram. So this is a Bashara. This is a prophecy for the Prophet and the Sahaba that indeed they will perform the Umrah that the Prophet saw in his dream. So Allah is confirming the dream of the Rasul to fortify and to reassure the Prophet and the Sahaba that indeed it is Wahi and the knowledge he received from that dream is conclusive, it is not speculative, it is based on Sidq, which is truth and truthfulness. So a Nabi's dream is always truthful, and this is how Allah will make it happen. Amini, inshallah, amini. Through Allah as well. Amini, that's the key point there. 
that you'll be safe and secure. Whereas if you were to perform the Umrah before Hudaybiyah, you would not have been secure and you would not have been safe. So protecting the Nabi and protecting the Sahaba is a major hikmah in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's scheme and in his system, in his nidham. So, inshallah, yeah, Allah is using not something to as a speculation, but as a definitive understanding that indeed you will. Also, that in the previous occasions when the Prophet said he will inform the Quraysh of an answer and he expected Jibreel to come, but he didn't come for several days. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala disciplined the Prophet and said that and don't say that you will do something tomorrow except with Allah's will. So this is now the Quran being consistent with itself uses inshallah to show that consistency. But they all knew that they will be performing Umrah. Some of you will be shaving, will have shaven heads, and some of you will have your hair cut. Both are allowed. Shaving is much better than cutting your hair. As you all know, the Prophet in his final Hajj, the Hajjat al Wida, he had shaved his hair Mubarak and distributed every strand of his hair to the Sahaba, and so on. So that is the, that you'll be safe, and you'll have your head shaved to show your dedication to Allah, and that you have no zina, and you have no beauty in front of Allah, if you sacrifice everything for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, la takhafun, you'll not be in a state of fear. You won't fear anyone, anything. And that was the purpose of Hudaybiyah, to ensure that there is peace, security, safety in the Hijaz as they travel anywhere they want, so that you'll establish an infrastructure. So Allah knows and he knew what you did not know meaning at Hudaybiyah, and also in terms of confirming the dream of the Prophet Allah knows, so you should not be that hasty in, uh, you know, speculating about what Allah is doing and not doing. So if you don't know what has happened, then you don't know. You cannot speculate about the future, because only Allah knows that. فَجَعَلَ مِنْ ذَلِكَ Allah then uh, gave you, in place of that, besides that, he gave you a very open victory referring to Hudaybiyah itself, or it could refer to Khaybar, uh, which came later on, almost immediately, as they returned to Medina, as I mentioned uh, last week. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that the dream of the Rasul is true, it is based on silk on truth and truthfulness, and it is up to Allah when he decides to confirm that truth. From that world into this world, time and space uh, is not regulated by human desires, time and space is regulated by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Anyway, so that is now the adab of understanding the dream of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But he had to initiate 
the journey uh, to initiate the process by which they would eventually make the Umrah. So this is a cause and effect. So the effect is that Muslims went for Umrah, and the cause is the Prophet ﷺ taking the initiative to go for Umrah, even though he did not perform it. So that's how you have to be patient in how Allah converts the dreams and or the good news for Muslims, especially the Prophet ﷺ. Now that you have Hudaybiyah under your wings, and now that you have certain power, prestige, and certain abilities that you may execute in the Hijaz, in the peninsula, you have to know, understand the ultimate purpose of the Rasul Sallallahu's coming. What is, is his ultimate purpose? Is his ultimate purpose to conquer land and to expand and to dominate and control the world? Or is there a higher purpose? So one will be very mundane, uh, very political, and the other would be much more than that, and so on. So Allah addresses this issue. So the ultimate objective and purpose of Risala, of sending a messenger for people and to people, is this. He is the one who has sent his messenger uh, with guidance. So the first purpose is guidance, that human beings must be guided in all their affairs. So where there is no political system that says this, like in a non-Muslim country, you still need guidance in a non-Muslim country. How do you guide yourselves as Muslims here? Obviously through salat, psalm, zakat, and going for hajj, and through your ethics and behavior, and all the transactions that you administer through Islam and Islamic law and everything else that comes along with Islam through guidance. It must be guided, meaning the Sharia must approve of your behavior, of your actions, and so on. So this does not require a Muslim government per se. You're limited in your ability to establish Islam totally in an un-Muslim land, and that is basically the truth. But you still need guidance in whatever it is that you do. And then the deen of the truth, the ultimate absolute deen, religion, way of life, where you will need now the Muslim government to actualize this. This won't happen without a Muslim khilafah. So we must appreciate this. Huda is arm. It is universal for Muslims and for non-Muslims. For Muslims in non-Muslim countries, they still need hidayah. They still need guidance all the time in order to manage their affairs and do things properly as they are required to do. Adin al-Haq, that requires total absolute Muslim rule and Muslim governance and so on. It may be applicable in the Muslim land in terms of promoting, propagating, making da'wah to non-Muslims that you convince them, as mentioned in the next part of the ayah. 
so that this deen and this religion overcomes and overwhelms all other religions and all other ideologies and so on. So there must be idhar, meaning total domination. And that comes at different levels, first and foremost at the you know, intellectual level, and then at the cultural level, and then eventually at the political level also. So the idhar, the total dominance of Islam as a theory, as an ideology, that's for the non-Muslim. As for us, it's an aqidah. It's not a theory, it's not an ideology. But if you want that, that you must promote your deen in such a way that it conquers all other ideologies, meaning da'wah, at this level, the level of uh, in intellect, the level of academic Islam. And so this would be the primary reason why Muslims would exist in an un-Muslim land. In fact, the only reason. There cannot be any other reason if you understand this ayah, meaning you are the ambassadors of the Rasul, okay? you are deputies of the Rasul, and as deputies you should do what he does. And what is that? To promote and uh, propagate Islam. But that cannot be done unless there is a method and uh, an organized effort, a strategic effort to do so, which requires obviously knowledge, skill sets, um, resources, financial resources, institutional resources, etc. So this is something that applies to all Muslims. In a Muslim country, the deen al-haq has to be there on top of everything, and Muslim governments should abide by the rules of Sharia and govern by the civilizational values uh, that we have uh, in our deen and so on. But this ayah tells us that is much more than salat salm and so on. So there's so much work that's needed in order to make this ayah truthful. So Allah made the Rasul's dream come true, made his dream truthful, and Allah wants other Muslims now to carry on this legacy of making Islam truthful as representatives of the Prophet So this is the mission statement of the Rasul, that all other religions must be uh, subdued uh, by Islam, which is not that difficult to do if you know what to do. It's difficult to do if you don't know what to do. وَكَفَى بِاللَّهِ شَهِيدًا Allah is much more than enough as a witness. Meaning Allah will witness this one day, inshallah, and you must witness this as a witness to Allah and to his abilities and so on. So this is the way that all Muslims should be thinking. And that if we are representatives of the Prophet وسلم, then we should do what he does. And this is what he does. This was his mission. He established and succeeded with this mission in his lifetime. MashaAllah, as you know. And then the Sahaba took that on themselves. And they went throughout the world and promoted and propagated Islam and then executed Islam wherever they could. So this is something that we should really appreciate. How is this done? 
So Allah gives us now the method by which this is done. Hmm? Yeah, I mean, Allah doesn't give you a theory without giving you a practical application of the theories. So the practical application is in the Prophet Wasallam. So the theory is the first ayah, uh, that this deen must overwhelm all other religions. And how do you do this? Mm. This is how you do it. Muhammad Rasulullah. You must establish that Muhammad is the Rasul of Allah. That is what you must establish. Establishing Allah is one, that's half the job. That's not the whole job. Many people believe that God is one. There are so many different types of monotheists in the world. Is that Islam? No. Islam is when people believe Muhammad is the Rasul of Allah. That's when your Islam is there. It's not a question of incomplete or complete. There's nothing called incomplete Islam. That doesn't exist. There's only a complete Islam. The complete Islam is when everybody believes the way Muhammad sallallahu believes. So there Islam is now Muhammad-centric. Islam is Rasul-centric. What you believe Allah, about Allah, uh, in Allah is through the Rasul. If the Rasul says you can't believe about Allah this way, then you're not a Muslim. So everything and every aqidah that you have has to go through the institution of the Rasul, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. There's no other Islam. When we say we believe in Isa, we believe in Isa only the way Muhammad believes in Isa. We don't believe in Isa the way Christians believe in him. Hmm? Yeah. So this part of the ayah obviously transcends time and space that Muhammad is. is a muqtada and khabar for those who know a little bit of Arabic. There's no time here. He doesn't say, Kana Muhammad Rasul. Muhammad was Allah's Rasul. No, he is. Even now, he is. As we speak, he is the Rasul of Allah. In the grave, the Munkar and Nakir will ask you about him. So he's the Rasul there too. On the Day of Judgment, you'll be asked about him too. And before you enter Jannah, you'll be given drink by him too. And in Jannah, you'll be in his company. So he is always a Rasul. There's no time there. And Muslims must appreciate that. It wasn't that 1,400 years ago he was a Rasul. No. He is alive. He is now still our Rasul. He will continue to be our Rasul until we reach Jannah. Even there, he'll still be our Rasul. So this is Muhammad Rasul. The declaration and uh, when the Prophet ﷺ was negotiating the Hudaybiyah Treaty, uh, the Quraysh said, we don't believe you are Rasul. So the Prophet said, scratch my name off there. It is written Muhammad Rasul. This treaty is between Muhammad Rasulullah and the Quraysh. So the Quraysh said, we don't believe you are Rasul. If we believe you are Rasul, we won't be having this fight. So he said to Ali, erase that. Ali said, I'm not doing it. <laughs> I'm not erasing your name. So the Prophet asked him, 
asked Ali to show him where it was, and he erased it. So what did Allah do? Allah revealed it in the Quran, so that is never erased. Muhammad Rasulullah. Anyway, so that's just a footnote to all of that. So this ayah is now showing you that the way you're going to do Islam is by appreciating, believing, confirming that Muhammad is Allah's Rasul. He represents Allah in everything. Whatever he does, he does as a Rasul, not as an ordinary human being. So if he is good to his wives, it's not because he's a good husband. It's because he is Rasulullah. And the wives of the Prophet addressed him as Rasulullah. They didn't call him by his first name, Ya Rasulullah. I mean, that much of Adam was there, that even the wives would say, uh, we're not calling him by any other name except Rasulullah. To show that even as our husband, he's Rasulullah. He's not just a good husband. He's much more than that. And so on. So you can't go off uh, by telling your kids, he's such a nice man. He's not a nice man. He's a Rasulullah, period. Everything he does is because he is the Rasul of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this name, Mubarak, is mentioned only four times in the Quran. And obviously there are reasons why they're mentioned, where they're mentioned. But, you know, there are other names and titles Allah has used for calling the Nabi. Ya Nabi Ya Ayyuhal Nabiyu. Ya Ayyuhal Rasulu. Ya Ayyuhal Muzzammil. Ya Ayyuhal Muddathir. Ya Seen and Taha. And other titles Allah has used to show you know, the qualities of the Prophet But this one, Allah uses Muhammad to show that Muhammad as a complete human being is the one who represents Allah completely. He's the total manifestation of Allah's murad, of Allah's intent. And you must see him as such. You mustn't uh, analyze him and partialize him and say he's a good leader, he's a good statesman, he's a good imam, he's a good... No, nothing of that. That is shirk. Firrisala. We don't believe in shirk in any way, shape or form. He is Muhammad and he is a Rasul of Allah, period. That's it, nothing else. Everything else comes underneath that umbrella. Under the shade of Risala, he is who he is. And so it's obviously, uh, when you say he's a good man, then he killed people. That doesn't fly very well, especially nowadays with the millennials. <laughs> He's a nice man, but he killed everybody. He killed a few people because he was a Rasul. When he killed, he killed as a Rasul, not because he was a mean person. Anyway, that's a Aqidah issue here. So Muhammad is Allah's Rasul. And secondly, you need those who are with him. Those who are with him are the people who will... Uh, actualize the previous ayah by making sure Islam is dominant in every way, shape, and form. So since pr- uh, this is primarily for establishing a Muslim state, you have this sifa quality of the Sahaba, al-Kuffar, very severe and strict against the Kuffar, but amongst themselves they're very accommodating very kind and gentle to each other, meaning that you cannot allow any imposter 
You can't allow any alien influence to penetrate the Muslim ethos and the Muslim civilization. You have to be strong. You have to make sure that no one who has any intent to harm the Muslim is allowed in, as you do with your immigration. See how strict they are, how ruthless they are. That's their job, basically, to make sure the country is protected and so on. So you need this strictness against those who are not part of you and part of your civilization, obviously without killing them unnecessarily. So if you have Muslims living in a Muslim country, then although you tolerate non-Muslims living there, and they have rights, as we have rights, but they are not allowed uh, to cause any friction amongst Muslims. That has to be airtight. They're not allowed to propagate their deen. That has to be controlled and restricted and so on. Anyway, so this was the Sahaba, that they were like this, since they were going to rule uh, half the world, they had to be this way, so that Islam would always thrive and survive, and it would not be subject to dilution and to distortion and to bid'at. And so for that you need to be stripped. You can't be accommodating of bid'at, otherwise your whole edifice will fall down. You won't have Islam if you have bid'at, and so on. So this strictness is in the theology, is in the understanding of deen. So Abu Bakr did this first, that people who refused to pay zakat, he went and he killed them. The first fight after the Prophet was about these people, that they, want, they didn't want to pay zakat. So Abu Bakr said, I'm not allowing you to do this. This is a bid'ah. This is haram. You can't do this. So he was very strict. He, he saw them as murtaddim, he saw them as apostates, and then he went and he just killed them. Unless they submitted to pain zakat, then that was fine. So this strictness is there, all the way from Abu Bakr to Ali radiallahu, where Ali radiallahu also fought the khawarij. Hmm. So you see, the history of the khulafa is about being strict against bid'ah. So the Khawarij were guilty of many forms of bid'at, especially at the Aqidah level, and Ali fought them also. He, they did not allow any intrusion, ideological intrusion into Islam. That is what you need. So now the liberal Muslim agenda accommodate everybody when they don't accommodate you. Everybody wants to accommodate the Shia. The Shias never accommodate you. Where do they accommodate you? But you're very nice. <laughs> it's okay, let's be soft. No. Ashiddaw, you must be strict, especially in Aqidah. If you loosen your reins in Aqidah, everybody will trample all over you. You will not have an identity. No? And you will be shy and apologetic about saying who you are. If you're Sunni, say you are Sunni. Period. Don't shy away from it. You do have something called freedom of religion in this country. You see how many denominations the Christians have? On one street, they have 10 different churches. They don't shy away from saying they're Methodist or Evangelical or Lutheran or you know, Seventh-day Adventist. They don't care. It's about saying who you really are. So you have to be strict in your identity. Don't allow others to influence you and your deen. What is this? You know, it's not a free-for-all. 
That is not how we nor other people see religious groups. All religious groups are stubborn. They should be stubborn in their aqidah, that no one else infiltrates, because then you don't have a deen, basically. You have nothing. So accommodating, like people want to say, let's, let's accommodate the Qadianis. They say, what the heck for? They're not Muslim. Why even saying that they're Muslim? They're not Muslim. They should not be accommodated. And that is strictness in making sure your theory, your philosophy, your theology is foolproof. There you, you cannot afford to be nice because then, as I said, you will lose who you are. You won't have anybody uh, to back you up and so on. So that is what ashiddao means. It's very strict <coughs> in the method and also in the content of Islam so that people know who you are. And then Islam itself is beautiful. Right? Islam itself is formidable. Islam itself has so many benefits and so many you know, jewels and gems uh, to offer to people which they can benefit from. But you mustn't dilute as you cannot dilute the Qur'an. If somebody changes a letter in the Qur'an, everybody's on top of them. No, you can't do this. You can't change the Qur'an. You won't bring distortion or let's accommodate this method. And no. no accommodation. You are who you are. And you should be foolproof. So when you want to now promote Islam, whether a Muslim country or a non-Muslim country, it must be Islam that you're promoting, not some diluted mixture of Islam and kufr. That is not how you do din. That's not how you do religion. The product has to be what it is. You start inserting other pieces of machinery into one product, and that's not the product that you say that you're promoting. Right? If you have a rose oil, you can't put a fourth thing inside there. Right? Or third hand, now, junkyard piece. So it'll run. It won't run, it won't be Rolls Royce. Meaning that these these, uh, heretical groups that we have, and these people are bid'ah, they can run with their bid'ah, but it won't be Islam. Then you can't participate and say that they are Muslim. They're not Muslim. Very strict. This is what the Ummah needs. The Ummah is too relaxed nowadays, especially the Sunnis. Sunnis are so apologetic, so accommodating. These people, they don't accommodate the Sahaba, which is the first word here. وَالَّذِينَ مَعَهُمْ those who don't accommodate the people who are with the Rasul, and you're saying let's accommodate them, that's disastrous. Right? Disastrous. So there we have to be this shadid, very strict and very stern, very methodical also. Social engagement aside, political engagement aside, we're not saying that. So for the sake of living in this dunya, you may have those assignments of so-called toleration. But in order to identify yourselves as Muslims, you have to be very strict. If somebody says that, uh, you know, I don't really believe in angels. So is he a 90% Muslim or what? He's not Muslim, period. It's all or nothing. Iman is all or nothing. 
He's not fifty Muslim. Uh, he he could be a good Muslim because he does this. No, he's not Muslim. Period. Don't even say that. Don't go there. He's a good man. That's it. Finish class. Huh? So there, you have to be careful that your your strictness in your theology is the key to your survival, not success. It's the key to your survival. People must know who you are, as you will see in the context of this ayah, if you get there today. Um, and tolerating, accommodating each other, which the Sahaba were, and all the Sahaba were on the right deen. As you know, they accommodated themselves, and they had the best ethics and morals, and so on. So they were able to create an ummah, okay, with a very small amount of people. So there in Medina, the community of the Sahaba and the Muslim community in, in Medina, people would want to be there because of their accommodation, because of their fraternity, because of their love for each other and doing things for each other. There's no discrimination there based on race and based on ethnicity and so on. Yeah, the Prophet ﷺ wiped out all the munafiq uh, from Medina, and it has been that way, alhamdulillah, since that time. So this is the way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protects the, the legacy of the Prophet ﷺ and the loyalty of the Sahaba. Yeah, so we must appreciate that this ayah is now showing us this is the way you're going to make sure Islam dominates um, uh, all other ideologies and all other religions where the proof is in the pudding. Who are the people who uphold Islam? Islam is upheld by Muslims, not by abstract dogma. Abstract dogma, that it exists somewhere. But who holds those now ideologies? The Muslims. So Islam will be seen through Muslims not through the intellectual discourse. I mean, the people will see the proof in the pudding. So that's why Muslims have to behave in a certain way. And this is the behavior that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, that you must uphold your tawheed and uphold your love for the Rasul, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and uphold love for each other. Ruhama ubaynahum. You cannot factionalize yourselves by going into splinter groups and so on. You must be united at least on aqidah, which alhamdulillah we are, on the five pillars we're all united. That's what is the most important. You may have difference in opinion, in policy, and in your social ideas and other ideas, which is all now, you tolerate them. Toleration means you tolerate each other's differences of opinion, except in aqidah. You don't tolerate difference in aqidah, that's a no-no. Toleration in fiqh? Yes. That's the hallmark of Muslim civilization, that we have a pluralistic legal system. Our legal system is pluralistic. We can have Hanafi, we can have Shafi, we can have Maliki, we can have Hanbali, and whatever else that comes into the mix. So we will tolerate each other when it comes to legal understandings and social understandings and even some maybe ways and methods of you know, entertaining ourselves in times of nikah, in times of food, in terms of architecture and dress and so on. So the person who lives in West Africa is not going to dress the same way as a person who lives in Indonesia. That's toleration because you're not committing a sin.
You don't tolerate each other in sin, but you tolerate each other in variety, diversity, and so on. If you're there in uh, southern Africa, you're not going to speak the same language as you do in Russia. That's toleration uh, in ethnicity and in language. Right? That's how it is. But not in Aqidah. The Aqidah, no, no, no way. That is going to be concrete and robust, impenetrable. Uh, so, means that it doesn't matter what kind of food you eat, what kind of dress you wear, what kind of language you speak, or where you're from, you will be part of the Ummah. And that is what the Sahaba did, and that is what they established. Once they went outside of Arabia, okay, they assimilated this way. They didn't assimilate, integrate in values or in Aqidah. That's a, you know, a question that many people have. How can we integrate? You can integrate as long as you don't commit a sin. Can we now integrate and go to Christmas parties? For Dawah. Well, you'll be drinking the booze rather than giving Dawah. That's not integration. That's stupid. So if you're committing a sin through integration, that's a no-no. You can't do it. So the key is not to commit a sin. It, can you integrate and say, have a, a kind of a, a small talk conversation with your neighbor, sure. If that's what you call integration, that's fine. You integrate anyway because you're working with them. You're working for them, mostly. That's integration. That's not a sin. But if you say that, can we go out and sing Christmas carols? No. First of all, they're kind of boring anyway. Why would you want to listen to that? Kind of boring stuff. And second, it's all kufr. What are you doing? So that level of integration, especially for those who are community thinkers and leaders and glory seekers, where there's no glory. So that integration is not raham. The raham comes through good deeds. Raham comes through good deeds. Raham does not come through sin. Only harm can come through sin. So if you have a philosophy of integrating people, then let them be who they are and let them worship the way they want to worship and let them practice their religion the way they want to practice their religion and don't demand that they integrate. You can coexist without integrating. And the history of Muslim uh, countries is a proof. We allowed the Hindus to live very peacefully and we integrated with them. Very well, but they knew what Islam is. They never told us we should start making puja and worship these idols. Nor did we tell them that they should do this. Okay. So there are some common factors are necessary for coexistence. Okay. You can't jump over to the other religion and assume it is integration. And that's a no-no. Likewise, Muslim Spain, the Jews were there, the Christians were there. And so the Balkans, the, the, where the Ottomans ruled, okay, they let people be who they are, and so on. Okay, so this Ashiddal al-Kufar, they're strict only in terms of making sure they don't penetrate Islamic ideology, Islamic thought, and Islamic theology, and making sure they don't promote sin in the place where they live. Other than that, they were very tolerant of each other, in everything, especially in mistakes, where the mujtahid may make a mistake. And if he makes a mistake, 
you accommodate that academically. Intellectually, you accommodate them. The intellectual accommodation is also key to every civilization. And so, and then you can have your own diversity based on halal, not based on haram. So it's a very formidable system. Okay, it's a very unique system. It is a beautiful system that, unfortunately, we simply don't see the beauty in Islam anymore. We cast doubts on Islam more than non-Muslims cast doubt on. Islam, but this is not, that's not the way you're going to make sure Islam is the dominant ideology and theory in the world. And, um, you have to be very strong and convinced that Islam is the haq. And then the proof, that further proof, is that you need a spiritual superiority which is based on humbleness, which is a contradiction of terms. How can it be superior when you're humble? But that's how it is. Islam is all paradoxical. The Quran is all paradoxical. There's always opposites and so on. Now, as you see these very stern, stubborn people who won't let anything come into Islam, what, how will you see them? So Allah says, Tarahum rukkan sujjadan You will see them bowing down and in prostration. Stern here, humble here. Humble in front of Allah. Their hearts are soft. You can only be, when you go into ruku, you should, you know, entertain a little bit of softness in your heart. You're being humble. You're humbled by Allah's presence. And you're humbled in prostration to show that you have no might and power in front of Allah. Yeah, so that's how you know, humbleness now in salat, in worship, and so on. So in, in Islam, salat is all about being humble in front of Allah, the superior being. And if you have the ability to be humble at any moment, then you probably have some goodness in you. Those who don't show humbleness anywhere, obviously you know what you call them. Yeah. So the fact that when you see this group of people with the Rasul, they do what the Rasul does. So the Rasul is very strict, and the Rasul prays. He does salat. Aqim yeah. salat shams Ya al qalilan. All of those ayat that speak about the ibadah of Allah of the Rasul sallallahu the Sahaba inherited these traits uh, as you inherit from the Nabi and the Rasul. So this was their hallmark. This is what they did. That in their public life, they're very straightforward. In their personal and private life, they're very humble. For those who want to say it's all about community activities and community service, you should take a page from this. Yes, with community service, you need service to Allah also in your private time. So the Prophet Sallallahu as soon as he came into Medina, he mentioned a few things for community service. Atimutam, Wafsusalam, Wasilularham. And then that you must feed people and you must do community service, spread salam at the same time, keep your ties with people. But then he said, Pray when people are sleeping. So your private life must show that you have a, an association, a connection with Allah. 
that you are connected to Allah through your salat. And so that is when, when people are asleep. So community service in the day, worship at night. Mm. And that's now the method of those who want to engage in Islamic work activities. It can't be that you have community service and no salat, tahajjud, no nothing, no nothing. In fact, they don't even sometimes pray. If they pray, they don't pray very properly. So the community service idea is great and wonderful. It is necessary for the survival of any community. But the survival of a Muslim community depends on your ibadah. And the Sahaba knew this. That they were engaged with ibadah in their free time every day. It was part of their mission, part of their culture. And so why do they do this? Then they're seeking fadl of Allah and ridwan. Much more than fadl, there's ridwan, pleasure at the highest level. And so, on. so now making sure the community remains intact, impenetrable, making sure that there's accommodation in the community and making sure that you have a personal agenda to procure Allah's fadl. And that is now even more important that you actually believe what you have is from Allah. And you actually believe that what you have is a fadl and a bonus from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He doesn't have to give you anything, but he gives you out of his surplus bonus. Fadl is a bonus. Surplus. He doesn't have to give you anything. He treats you because you are showing humbleness. And you are showing need in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then when he gives you his fadl, then he gives you his ridwan, his pleasure, uh, his uh, kind of you know, um, confirmation that he is pleased with you. But you must have that desire in you to seek this confirmation from Allah. And that is not going to be procured through engaging unnecessarily with uh, the dunya. You must now see that you need to be slightly removed from the dunya. When you're in ibadah with Allah, you forgive, you forget the dunya as soon as you say Allahu Akbar. And that was the, the way of the people who are with the Rasul sallallahu alayhi wasallam, that they inherit all the attributes of the Rasul. So when those who have companionship, sahbah, they're accompanying the Rasul, they take on the colors of the company. And that is when you know that these people who are with the Prophet took on all the colors of the Prophet. How can you say they are unfaithful or they are liars and cheaters? And how can you develop a whole religion based on that false assumption? The Sahaba are no good. If that's not going against one in conventional wisdom and divine authority, then I don't know what is. So this is now the part of the equation of making sure that Islam is established as the most superior religion on the planet and so on. So this is a way forward for us also to think about this and make sure we follow the pattern of the Sahaba and follow the Prophet also, uh, but making sure that we 
we know who we are and what it is we need to do. But at the same time, you must rely on Allah and not rely on your efforts. You must make the effort, but rely on Allah and his follow. That's the key, that you are humble enough to say, all this is from Allah and all this is because of Allah. At the same time, be aggressive in what it is you do in the community, on the ground, and so on. So now this is another paradox. There's all the opposites working. And so you become a very stabilized, normal, comprehensive, holistic human being that you're well balanced. This is called the mizan in the Quran. So this is the mizan, the balance scales, that when you need to be aggressive, you are. And when you need to be humble, you are. And that's the key to hikmah. And that's the key to prophetic wisdom. We don't have time to complete this. Inshallah, the next time we meet, we'll try and complete it. This, this ayah is so packed. There's so much stuff here that we can't really unpack it in a couple of hours. But we'll see what we can do, inshallah. Jazakumullah khair. Subhanallah wa hamdihi. Subhanakallah wa hamdik. Nashallah ilaha illa anta nastakhulika natubili. Subhanallah rabbika rabbil izzati amma yisifun. Wa salamun ala al-mursaleen. Alhamdulillah.